I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Always Regather Edition. It's Wednesday, May 12, 2021. On today's show, Girls 5 Eva comes to us from the Tina Fey Comedy Factory. It's about a Spice Girls-like girl group reuniting in middle age. It's on Peacock, the streaming service of NBC, as I understand it. I think that's what that is. And then, which vaccine did you get? Apparently, even a huge public works campaign undertaken in the spirit of universal well-being can be turned into a status competition in 2021. What else did we expect? With Pfizer as the most supposedly status symbolic of all the jabs. This is crazy. And finally, The Disciple is currently up on Netflix. It tells the story of a youngish musician in Mumbai trying to keep alive the tradition of Indian classical music in an otherwise indifferent world. We'll be joined by Justin Chang of the LA Times, the great film critic who has been championing this film as maybe the best of the year. Joining me now is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey, how's it going? Hello. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic, the also wonderful film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana, how's it going? Uh, hi, pretty good. Uh, shall we? Shall we dig in? Let's do it. Girls 5 Eva is a girl group from the 90s, a one-hit wonder who disbanded, whose members each found their way into fame's somewhat pitiless afterlife. Fast forward to now, when a rapper named Little Stinker has sampled their hit, they get asked to back him live on Fallon's show, and you have the basis for a Tina Fey shepherded sitcom. The creator here is Meredith Scardino, a writer on Faye's Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It stars Sarah Bareilles as the chill one, Busy Phillips as the hot one, Paula Pell as the kind of ordinary one. I don't know how to put it. Renee Elise Goldsberry as the kind of tough one. Let's listen to a clip. Because, Carson, we're going to be in the game longer than forever. Now, how did you guys get together? I'm sorry, together. Uh, We've been best friends ever since we auditioned for a man in a motel in New Jersey. We all saw the same ad written onto a newspaper. But it was... Fate that Larry picked us because we're going to be friends, Five Eva, mm-hmm. famous Five Eva, young Five Eva, oh, or maybe six Eva, oh, seven Eva, four Eva, longer than a millennia. Uh, Julia, let's start with you. You know, this is a great setup. Just listening to that clip, it kind of writes itself in a weird way, but of course, it doesn't. It's got the Tina Fey uh, genius behind its uh, comedy writing. What did you make of the show? This is a very enjoyable show that I can heartily recommend to people who are still uh, pulling themselves out of the dregs of lockdown and figuring out how to adjust to normal life with things to do. Maybe that sounds like a less than glowing endorsement, but it does require you to figure out how to subscribe to Peacock, which as like the 11th service that everybody has now to stream is um, is a lot. So I feel like that's the fundamental question. Is it worth setting up a new streaming service that you have to either keep or remember to cancel in order to watch this show? And I would say, yes, I think so. Although I also do not think this show is as strong as 30 Rock or Kimmy Schmidt 
And maybe it will become that strong as it grows on me over time. But the performances are a little more uneven and the characters a little less well-defined, I think, than in, in some of those classic shows. However, the star to me are the songs, which are written by Tina Fey's husband, Jeff Richmond, who's, who's always been behind some great musical numbers throughout uh, the Fey oeuvre. And they're, as you could hear from that initial clip, <laughs> my, my husband and I have just been singing that song around the house all weekend. <laughs> and there's many more funny songs to come in the show. So, you know, between having Sarah Bareilles and Renee Elise Goldsbury and yeah, you you have some real singing and musical chops in the show, and they make use of it in a way that's pretty fun. What do you guys think, Julia? I really hear what you you say about this being a, a late lockdown show. I had this I had this thought about standards after watching this show, where I sort of see all the criticisms that there could be to make of it, and yet. It's perfectly enjoyable enough for me. Like this is as much as I need right now. <laughs> these silly songs <laughs> and these um and these sort of heartful performances from really really likable performers. And I want to get into each one of the the four girls. There are only four of the five girls because one of them we learn in the first episode tragically passed in an infinity pool accident. <laughs> I think a lot of the criticism about this show seems to have circled around its familiarity and the idea that it's too much of a retread of the the Thirty Rock style with extremely you know dense jokes every every second. I mean, every line essentially contains some sort of new twist or joke. As someone who who only watched 30 Rock a few times, like I'm familiar with the show, but did not at all follow when it was on, I'm really impressed that there's there's still somebody out there writing with this level of density. This does feel a little bit like an old school sitcom, but that feels so welcome and comforting right now. And I really like that this show doesn't ask you to do anything except laugh and tap along with the songs. There does not seem to be a huge deep story emerging about each character. We don't learn a ton about their family lives or backgrounds, except for the Sarah Bareilles character, who's sort of, I guess, the main one, the one whose family we, we spend some time with. And we don't learn even that much about the girls' relationships with each other or sort of how they're readjusting to, to being together after all these years of the band being broken up. But the show moves so quickly and is so full of, of sparkle that... I was perfectly happy to have all of those frailties fully, fully evident. Um, I'm not sure that I would subscribe to a brand new service for it, but there are other things to subscribe to Peacock for, one of which is an old school sitcom, The Office, American version. So if you're a sitcom person who likes things like 30 Rock or um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, something that is just sort of a poppable lozenge of a sitcom, then I think this is right up your alley. Oh my gosh, I'll be the little stinker at the picnic. I I, I didn't like this. I'll, and he, he, here's why. I mean, it was a couple different reasons. The first is that, you know, back in 1989 or 1990 or whatever it was, the, the geniuses behind The Simpsons decided to throw a bunch of Harvard smartasses in a writer's room and have them, you know, uh, uh, you know tr- attempt to crack each other up and outdo each other um, a- and thus create a super joke-dense script. It really was something new. It was totally fresh. And it was very appropriate to the cartoon format because you weren't supposed to believe that these humanoid, but clearly not exactly human figures of Homer and Marge, etc., were real. It was a cartoon-based style of writing. The revolution, as I understand it, of 30 Rock in some sense was just transferring that to a live-action format where the people are kind of half cartoons, half real. The sentiments being gotten at were kind of shallow and fake it was appropriate that it was backstage for showbiz because showbiz is kind of like that and the most important thing about it in some sense i mean in in addition to the remarkable performances of Faye and alec baldwin and the ensemble cast was 
super joke dense writing setup joke setup joke setup joke setup joke I can't do that really anymore in 2021. I have to admit that's just me. Uh, I voiced this, you know, sulfurous opinion on absolutely nobody else at the picnic. I just find it exhausting and I don't find the people real. And then the second thing I didn't like about it, just congenitally, it just rubs me the wrong way. Is just, I hate entering into a universe in which what's real is the media and not human beings at all. I mean, I just finished Call My Agent, which is just for me was what I needed to get through the hopefully knock on wood tail end of pandemic, which was like, I needed my TV best friends, you know? And for that, I needed to believe they were sort of real and that their dramas were kind of like my struggles or dramas. And that's only more pathetic. I don't say that this means that my tastes are elevated in any sense whatsoever, but I got drawn so into that show. And a distinctive thing about that show is I don't think there's one setup joke, much less 15 per minute uh, in the entire thing. And it's actually witty, which I'm not sure this is. I, Julia, I know you loved 30 Rock. And when I watch 30 Rock, I laugh. It, it gets me, but it gets me in a way that I don't always love in some sense. I, I just, yeah, I, don't, I know a, I'm wrong. No, but. no, there's like a... The cartoonishness, and then there's sort of a, a cynicism underlying the jokes, just about humankind and human nature. And sometimes there's some sweetness too, but there's there's a lot of hard stuff in there. I mean, I would slightly contest your genealogy of the, the joke-packed comedy, and I think the writers of <laughs> Seinfeld and um, no, and Frasier no, no. would have some would have would have some some no. remarks for you potentially about that. Um, but I agree, the density with with Thirty Rock is maybe another level. To me, I mean, I think this can get us back around to the performances that Dana wants to dig into, which I think we should as well. I think the issue here is this is an eight-episode run, and I think the Kimmy Kimmy Schmidt seasons, I think, were 10 or 13, and obviously 30 Rock was like a proper, you know, television show with 20-odd a season. And the spirit of these fey comedies, I think, is that the cartoonishness is this, like, brassy facade that ends up turn as the carapace to an actually very specific human being over time. And like Jenna Maroney is a very precise human being. Tina Fey, the, the Liz Lemon character is a very specific human. Um, you know, the character Alec Baldwin plays is, is like not just macho uh, boss guy, but like a very particular macho boss guy who you end up having. He ends up being as real as Andrea Martel. It's just, you have to go through all this, you know, you have to kind of get it through repetition and get into this like particular way of talking and being to see the the humanity. And I think that was true in the Kimmy Schmidt show as well. And here the portraits seem a little bit fuzzier. And I think you, there's just not quite as, as much time for the humanity to emerge behind the jokes. But I, I'm curious to know, Dana, which is your favorite performance here? I mean, I think they just have such good chemistry. They're all great together. F- favorite performances. I think you mean three together. <laughs> I mean, just even the silly repetition of like the number. It just the the way the how far this show takes the idea of sticking a number somewhere in as a syllable of a word is in itself funny. But yeah, I think the standout performance and surprising one to me is probably Renee Elise Goldsberry. 
who of course we know as an Angelica from Hamilton primarily, at least I did, and and who I think of therefore as being this sort of gracious, elegant, you know, sophisticated singer, which she is on stage. But in the, the person that she plays in this this show is so much more. She's still lovable. She's not a she's not at all a um a character that you dislike, but she's so much more craven and narcissistic and and self serving, and she's just very very funny at playing that, and also incorporates her vocal chops into the part and this hilarious way because the idea almost is that her her character is a kind of savant you know she's not particularly um she certainly has not handled her career well she's not um, particularly smart about the way she's living her life she's kind of a mess but she has these incredible pipes that she can you know knock out a vocal run at any moment and often does in the middle of a sentence for no reason and Goldsberry is just so so funny at playing that especially with Sarah Bareilles opposite her another you know Broadway diva, but one who's so undiva-like, right? Sarah Bareilles is so much more sort of um, low-key and uh, and internal in her way of performing. And so the two of them as, you know, co-performers and eventually in this show roommates are, are a really good surprise. But also I just have to shout out Paula Pell, who is the member of the group who appears 20 years later having come out as a lesbian. She's also just broken up with her wife. She is just such a, a fascinating character and a very, very funny woman. She's also not a singer, as Busy Phillips, the other member of the foursome, is not. But they're all just so, so good at seeming uh, at once sort of like self-parodies of showbiz types, but also, I think, um, people that you have a warm feeling for. I mean, maybe because I haven't watched so much Tina Fey, I don't I don't feel some sense of, um, of alienation from these characters at all. I agree that they could be better drawn. This show could be a bit better written in the non-singing parts and we could know more about them. But as we bounce from performance to performance, I kind of feel like I'm getting to know them that way. I, I So I just want to say, I, the ensemble is terrific. I love the songs. I just, I, I, someone who didn't love the style of the comedy, I just was waiting for another song to come on. They're, they're brilliant. Uh, I could see the show deepening and getting much better. I, I just, I, I adored the songs. And to be clear, the show is very, very clever. I mean, I just find myself exhausted by the style of comedy, the pace and the density of it. I find a little uh, snarky and overwhelming, but it's brilliant. You cannot believe that that many precisely funny things are being said in the span of one minute of airtime. So I have taken the stink a little bit off of uh, the skunk at the picnic. All right. Well, the show is uh, Girls 5 Eva. It's on Peacock. Uh, so scale the paywall and find Tina Fey and Meredith Scardino and uh, some wonderful stuff behind it. Okay, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, what do we have? Yes, it is, Steve. And all we have is to tell you that in Slut Plus, our bonus segment is going to be about cars today. This is from a listener question from a listener named Tanya who writes in to ask about what is each of our relationship with car culture. Since we live in three different places with three very different relationships to cars and driving, we will talk about how much we drive, whether we drive, whether we like to drive, and other feelings about cars. I think that will be particularly interesting in the case of Julia because she's moved to Los Angeles in the last 
few years, and so she obviously has a very changing relationship to car culture. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing that. Vroom, vroom, after the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. It's only $1 for your first month, and for that dollar, you get access to ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus-only content, like our thrilling conversation today about cars. Mine actually is thrilling, because I can tell you about all the crashes I've gotten in in the past. And you can sign up for that at slate.com slash culture plus. And if you're already a Slate Plus member, and like Tanya, you have a topic or question for us in a future Slate Plus segment, we welcome it. We seek it. Every single week, we wonder what to talk about, and we love when you send us ideas. So you can always email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, when I went to go get my vaccine, I, I did this thing where I, I, in order to get it, you know, what otherwise would have been prematurely, I volunteered at a vaccine site in um, Albany. And it was so incredibly moving. It was a giant public works project like I've never seen in my lifetime. I feel like I've I've only read about it in history books going back to the New Deal or something. And a expression of Bidenomics. And there's a new sheriff in town. And I just felt so selfless. It was like I was building the Tennessee Dam with my own two hands or something. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I sort of also mean it a little bit. And I wake up only to discover, Dana Stevens, that it is now possible to turn which vaccine you happen to get, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, or God forbid, AstraZeneca, into uh, a kind of uh, status competition you know, or pardon my French, a pissing competition with Pfizer supposedly as the sexiest, most desirable of the vaccines against which Dan Coyce of Slate rightly pushes back and says, wait a second, isn't, aren't status competitions settled by who gets the rare thing? In which case, as he says, I got the, you know, I was one and done, baby. I got the J and J only 7 million of us out there. Why isn't he at the top of the heap? I, people, I guess, are being semi-serious about that. I mean, I just cannot quite pick through it and figure out how much is, like, you know, shit-eating irony and how much of it, how much of this is serious. What do you make of uh, the vaccine uh, uh, competition? It's just so extremely silly. I knew nothing about this. I had been really, I mean, I'm on this, this is a separate subject, but I'm sort of on this news diet, both because of, you know, deadline and because of uh, just not being able to take the news anymore. Like, I actually do not take in any news. It has to find its way to me through some sort of third party. So I completely missed that there had become this semi-ironic status competition among the vaccines until we decided to talk about it. Um, I guess to me, it's just, it's, it's an example of, I mean, it's the narcissism, small differences thing, right? When you've got so little to talk about and so little kind of gossip floating around as we do in our current isolated pandemic universe, I guess, something like which is the cool vaccine can become the topic of conversation. Um, but it sounds like, to, to the, for the most part, this trend, uh, which is, I think, pretty self-consciously ironic and silly, originated on TikTok uh, among, you know, like people who people who are designing their, their TikTok both to, you know, pick up on silly memes like this and to debate questions like, you know, who's hotter and who's doing the hot thing. So why not apply that to you know, which pharmaceutical company is putting antibodies in your arm as well. Um, I have to say that in the midst of all this, uh, I did even, just as happens with astrology, that even as I sort of thought like, well, this is nonsense, I started thinking, but wait, what's my profile? How do I fit into it? So I'm just curious which vaccine you guys got and why it turned out to be that one and, you know, whether you attach any status with it. I guess I'm the sort of boring uh, normie who got the Moderna vaccine. Um, but one thing that doesn't seem to be entering into all these debates 
and discussions about it, which was the only thing I cared about in thinking which one to get, not that I had a choice, was what were the side effects? Um, even all the slate coverage of this, and there's been one, as you say, um, defending the Pfizer vaccine and another kind of examining the whole phenomenon. Nobody has been talking about what are the different side effects of each of the vaccines? And supposedly, I believe Moderna is supposed to have worse ones than Pfizer, right? Did, did any mm-hmm. of that figure in for you guys? Which, by the way, means it's the best of the vaccines. Are, I, Julia, if this is like astrology. It's so obvious that you're a Pfizer princess. <laughs> I am a Pfizer princess. <laughs> How did you know? But I will say... I mean, I'm reading all these stories. I, I guess people need things to talk about. And I guess the the there's a potential upside in arguing that a vaccine is a desirable status object because it could help push the overall uh, vaccination drive, which is slowing down as the people who definitely want to get vaccinated have done so. I obsessively researched the vaccines ahead of time and was trying to figure out which one was the safest to get and was like, you know, getting to the point of my research where the fact that I am a reporter convinces me that I'm also a scientist and doctor. And I was like reading like NIH papers and like, (laughs) just, I don't know. I mean, I think so much of the last year is about control, right? What rules do you put on your life to try to control whether you and your loved ones will be impacted in the worst possible ways by this pandemic? And so the whole process of getting the vaccine and then adjusting to life as a vaccinated person is about changing those rules and relinquishing the rules of control you've set and establishing new ones. So I went through like a whole crazy texting random friends with scientific knowledge like spurt where I for a while was convinced that I actually wanted the J&J vaccine because its mechanism was less new with the mRNA than Uh, or its mechanism was less new than the mRNA vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna represent. Um, And anyway, and then it was like hard to tell which vaccine you were going to get where, and I was able to get an appointment for Pfizer, so I got Pfizer. So my desire was to be a J&J person, and then they stopped. um, It was before they actually officially paused J&J, but J&J was just very hard to get in L.A. for a while. So um, it's a slightly more complicated story than just being a Pfizer princess, but now I am a Pfizer princess, and I will (laughs) accept the designation. I mean, of course, this is incredibly silly. The only thing one wants is for more people to be lured into get, or I mean, lured. They shouldn't be lured. They should be running, you know, with both feet and total enthusiasm to go get it. But whatever gets more people to get jabbed, to get stuck, to get these antibodies in their system so that we, you know, not only kill the virus off in that individual person, but we create a population of dead ends for the virus so it doesn't freaking mutate and become something, you know, wretched or force us, you know, even if the boosters are 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 easily, you know, dialed up on the old mRNA, you know, microprocessor and um, you know, e- you know, even then like just having to get a booster is a, is a drag and like let's just kill this freaking virus already if some inane game that involves a competition to get the best one brings more people in to get it that's great my one worry is that is that there is a not entirely anecdotal unscientific suspicion about the J&J vaccine i mean they've had trouble rolling it out there have been at least some possible issues with uh, uh, a serious side effect i hate to not get in the spirit of the fun of this because it is very funny i mean some of the stuff is just utterly hilarious you know pfizer's only for hot people or Moderna's for the middle class or some, I mean, it's just all so over the top and hilarious. I will say it's 
how you could possibly have come up with a status distinction between the Pfizer and the Moderna whose discrepancy in efficacy is within a margin of error. I have to believe is within a margin of error. One is 95%, one's 94%. There's, I guess, I guess it's tied to the fact that maybe Pfizer was the first one to report its results. And so there was this sense, just thanks to the vagaries of the news cycle, that Pfizer somehow had, you know, was the Jonas Salk of uh, stopping coronavirus. But all of it is just, it's so kind of not entirely deliciously preposterous. People should just go get the freaking vaccine. Like if you are hearing my voice and you are reluctant at all to get this thing, that's the only thing that matters. Like turn your, like you're a little on switch right now. Turn yourself into an off switch. Yeah, but Steve, doesn't it seem more likely from a public health perspective? I mean, if, if I were looking at this from some macrocosmic perspective of somebody who was really trying to get more people to get shots into their arms, I think that I would not like the divisiveness of this this TikTok meme and Agreed. and ir- ironic bunch of you know dissing of vaccines at all because you know obviously there's going to be some portion of the population that just gets that filter down to them as somehow Pfizer is better, <laughs> right? It's going to protect my health better or it's safer, especially after the J and J had that. You know, very small, but but you know, meaningful in people's minds association with blood clotting in some people. If you start to get the sense that you know this one's the classy vaccine, and I'm holding out unless I can get it, then you know you are minimizing. And for most of the experiences that I heard, I mean, Julia was researching which one to get, but most people I know didn't have much of a choice. It was sort of you know, it depends which location you get an appointment at or drugstore and what they happen to be carrying. I also wanted to note in terms of how it got to be that you know Pfizer was essentially because of 1% difference, I guess, or for some utterly meaningless reason associated with the uh, the classy vaccine, that one of the, the funnest things we read in preparation for this segment is a piece from The Atlantic, wherein the, the reporter, among other things, interviews a linguist who develops brand names and, and talks to him literally about the name Pfizer and why that might appeal to people more. And he comes up with some really interesting theories about it. For one thing, it's a familiar name to most people, being the maker of Viagra, which is an extremely famous medication, even if, you know, you're you're outside the medical industry, everybody knows what Viagra is. Um, and he has these these linguistic ideas about why the word Pfizer feels luxurious because it has a silent letter in it because <laughs> because it's a proper name which people associate with designers. And let me just read you a little bit of what this this secondhand, but what she got from this linguist is fantastic. He says many high end fashion brands are named after people like Pfizer, Fendi, Prada, Kenzo, and many are two syllables like Pfizer. And then he also says it's a cool word because of the F and Z sounds, which are fricatives that give you this sense of, you know, movement. Whereas Moderna, dorky old Moderna that you and I have in our dorky body, Steve, has has a lot of stops. It's a it's a it's a word that goes moderna, you know, that has these consonants in the middle that make it sound in his words slow and plodding. <laughs> so actually I think it's kind of fascinating to think of, you know, people are so used to, we Americans are so used to branding and status and comparing everything to everything else. And, you know, just the idea that you can take anything, even the name of a pharmaceutical company, and turn it into a brand and start fetishizing it is just it's so weird and, and interesting to me. I mean, I'm so proud, Julia, of the fact that I got the Franklin Delano Roosevelt universal middle class. You know, this is this is like Brandeis and Felix Frankfurter and Ruth Bader Ginsburg approve of the dorky antibodies coursing through me right now. And you, you got the let them let them eat Moderna. 
you know, Marie Antoinette on the frickin' balcony <laughs> vaccine. Uh, I, I will accept your punching baggery because it seems like you could just as easily make the argument the other way. Like, don't you feel like you could just like control replace Pfizer and Moderna and all these stories? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. like, you could have the linguist being like Moderna. It sounds modern. So people associate it with the most advanced technology in future. And Pfizer is hard to pronounce. Like, <laughs> uh, Julia, Julia, he actually addresses that. He says Moderna oh, is also very literal, like a budget brand would be. And he says, do you really have to call yourself modern if you're selling pharmaceuticals that are, in fact, based on cutting-edge technologies? No, you'd be more cool about it. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying you could, I'm sure you could find a way to spin the argument the other direction. I mean, I think, I, I will say, since you reference our pal FDR, Steve, the real reason to get vaccinated is to turn yourself into an off switch. I love that metaphor. The The other reason is that these vaccination sites are so moving. I've now been three times to, to get my two jabs. And then I also took my father to get his first shot. And um, just the sheer, you know, you, you can be a Tina Fey cynic about the human condition, you can look out at the world of politics and the economy and uh, everything that's happening nationally and internationally and feel pretty depressed about where the world is heading. But it's like, you know, score score one for humankind. <laughs> like, actually, humanity working together can accomplish amazing things from the scientists who figured out how to do this to the manufacturers who figured out how to manufacture it to all the logistics and distribution people who figured out how to distribute them to all the volunteers, nurses, randos, everybody in a neon vest waving you into this line or that line, whoever showed up in the morning to set up the cones and the tents and the you know, be the people who go over if you honk in your car and you're having a side effect. Like, it's so moving. Like, I cried. I cried when my dad got his first shot just being moved at, like, what humankind is capable of, which I feel like is what these vaccination sites are a testament to. And so all of this <laughs> narcissism of small differences stuff is, I suppose, entertaining, but really get any of them. Just go get them. I mean, you know, the the, the I, we, I don't mean to be dismissive of the J&J blood clotting concern, which seems both very minor, but there is a recommendation that if you're a woman of a certain age, you should actually try to get the other ones um, just to eliminate that risk. But, you know, do do a little homework and then just go get the one you can get. Absolutely. I'll let that be the last word. Get your shot. All right. Moving on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. The movie The Disciple, now up on Netflix, tells the story of Sherrod, a young man who's trying to turn himself into a singer. He's trying specifically to learn how to properly sing Hindustani, a northern Indian classical music, which requires a rigorous form of discipleship to, in this instance at least, a specific master. Is very challenging, as we come to understand. One must learn somehow to connect up simultaneously to tradition, to a great tradition, to the wellsprings of the cosmos. It's a very religious and devotional music. 
And one must also find one's own ability to spontaneously improvise within the form, as someone says at one point in the movie, to satisfy both your guru and your god. And as the movie shows us, while also fending off Facebook, uh, star search kinds of TV shows, traffic jams, and even porn, the movie is written and directed by Chaitanya Tamhani. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. I mean, the movie is overwhelmingly not in English, but there is uh, there's extraordinary music throughout. Let's listen to some of that. Okay, well, we're joined by Justin Chang, the uh, great film critic of the LA Times. Justin, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Justin, your pieces about this, one for NPR, one for the LA Times, have been really wonderful. You're championing a movie you clearly love. Talk a little bit about why you love it. Yeah, I should just say, you know, like um, most, probably most American viewers coming to this movie, I went into this knowing nothing about Hindustani classical music. And, you know, I would reassure anyone thinking about watching it, which I do recommend, um, that no expertise or knowledge of that music is required. I mean, I'm sh- of course, if you're well-versed in it, you'll probably appreciate this film even more. But one of the many impressive things about this movie for me is that it actually does try to teach you something about this music in a way that doesn't feel like it's being dumbed down. It feels very intellectually and aesthetically curious about the music, about its spiritual dimensions, um, and everything you said, Steve, about the fact that it requires virtuosic technique and brilliant improvisation skills, and also like 10 lifetimes worth of dedication to pursuing philosophical enlightenment and moral purity. And all of these things, which are probably so alien and seemingly obsolete, this whole art form seems perhaps that way to most of the world and possibly most people watching this movie. I think that's why it is just on the most basic level a valuable document and tribute document of and tribute to this art form and what's so fascinating about it to me is that this movie does all this within a story about a failed or frustrated artist someone whose career is largely about frustration i mean hollywood turns out so many inspirational movies about gifted artists and geniuses and they tell you almost nothing about the art itself tamhani has made this movie that through the prism of struggle and frustration i think goes so much deeper i just loved how um kind of unsentimental the movie is about that and and heartbreaking too yeah i had a moment in the middle of feeling like Oh, it's like whiplash, but if the drummer's not that good. I mean, it's not it's not much like whiplash in many, many other ways. <laughs> and in, in in the ways in which pyrotechnic drumming is different from Hindustani 
uh, music, but there's a there's there's sort of the same ambition, frustration, drive toward art, but the interest is in the not quite getting there as opposed to the the virtuoso and the prodigy. And it's there's so much interesting emotional terrain there. Yeah, Julia, the, the the movie that, you know, in many ways is completely unrelated, but that popped to mind for me was Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers movie, which is also about, you know, someone who's so passionate about an art form that they know so much about and practice endlessly. And yet you get this sense like they're, they're never going to make it as a, as a performer in this art form. And it's even though we've just cited a few movies that are about it, it's, it's a fairly rare way for a movie about an artist to approach art. Right. I mean, there tends to, to either be a triumphal narrative of someone rising to the top because of their hard work and talent or, you know, some sort of um, the artist crashes and burns kind of biopic structure. And this movie has none of that, which makes it so unexpected. I mean, something I really loved, Justin, about this movie is that you really didn't know where it was going to go, even though that doesn't mean that it's, you know, suspenseful and full of twists and turns. It's very quiet. It's, you know, even for someone who loves slow movies, it is definitely slow, but slow in the best way, slow in the slow food way, right, where the rewards, you know, make it make it so worthwhile. But there are some very intense scenes, including, you know, scenes of, of great emotional power that are delivered in this very curious way with these these long framings that you talk about and you're writing about the movie, right? That the, most of the shots are, 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 most of the scenes are in one shot um, and usually from a fair distance so that even when characters are undergoing some sort of intense emotional experience, you are seeing them in the context of the room they're in, all the other musicians maybe, the audience, etc. And it really makes you as the viewer have to um, have to do a lot of the work in a way that I really appreciate to kind of fill in the lines, right? There's not going to be a close-up or a musical cue that tells you how to feel. Even though this movie's packed with music, there's no music outside of the music that the characters are creating, right? So there's never a moment that the filmmaker is is kind of tipping his hand in that way about about how you're supposed to feel, including about the guru. This the the relationship, the central relationship in this movie is between the young man and his his old um, teacher. And and it's true that these guru relationships in this form of music are, you know, they go on for generations. As the guru tells them at one point, you know, I, I it wasn't until I was 40 that I could start really performing this music effectively. And he's saying this to a 24-year-old disciple, you know. But the movie also, and I won't give away how, but it also has some really wonderful scenes that question that disciple-guru relationship and don't idealize it and start to ask, you know, what's behind this kind of dedication? And the way it handles all of that stuff is just is just so beautiful. I'm really, really glad that you are are highlighting this movie because it would have passed me by. I mean, I'm a movie critic and I hadn't heard about it. The Netflix has just done such a terrible job of letting people know they have this gem on their system. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, they really have. And I mean, I, you know, I, I, I did know this. I had been looking forward to this director's movie because I, I'd seen his first movie, the very excellent uh, legal drama Court from several years earlier. And so when I saw that he had a new one, which the screened at the at Venice uh, last year and uh, where it won a screenplay prize and also played at the virtual Toronto and New York film festivals, I was I kind of went in, you know, despite not knowing anything about it, except just having high expectations. But yeah, I mean, just the Netflix thing, you know, as I said in my LA Times review, it's like I try to review movies, not release strategies. But 
I do think that this fits into a larger troubling pattern about the way Netflix treats the movies that it acquires from overseas. And, you know, not just overseas, but, you know, they don't treat a lot of their, you know, uh, American domestic product all that great either. But I have really mixed feelings about what Netflix does with international movies. I'm sure a lot of filmmakers have mixed feelings too, because, um, you know, it's wonderful to have your movies streamed out all over the world and countries all over the world. And for some, that's enough. And then there are movies like this one that were clearly meant to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Um, and I mean, in a in an outside COVID situation, right? So yeah, I just, I think this is not the first time Netflix has done it with this, but it is, it, it rankled a little bit that they did it with a movie that did have a pretty high cro- critical profile coming out of the festivals and um, should have just been, I think, presented, marketed, uh, just a courtesy email to some of the journalists who supported the movie and are interested in the movie uh, would have been even better. And I think they do this time and time again with um, a lot of movies, uh, especially from other countries. Um, They did this with the Taiwanese drama A Sun last year, which got a lot of acclaim, but which Netflix didn't even seem to realize it had acquired and they just dump it on the platform. So that's just a side. And I I just, to me, it seemed relevant to write about because... I don't know, because uh, this is a movie about... It, it seems so hideously ironic with given what The Disciple is about, which is that this art is worth pursuing, studying, preserving, giving your full attention, giving it love and care, and um, and they just treat it like it's product, and that's uh, bothersome. I, Justin, I really wanted to highlight that. The, 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 what I love about the movie is also what I love about your review, which is that they're both written with this wisdom about the relationship between commercial success and authenticity that goes way beyond some simple antithesis. I I love the way in which the movie, I mean, uh, you know, this movie, as you know, right, is this movie is not good because it's obscure. And the movie repeatedly explores the idea that this music isn't authentic because no one knows knows about it or cares about it anymore, that that's that that shouldn't be mistaken for the source of its authenticity, even as the movie is very, I think, skeptical of the forces of popularization. It's it yes, it's just the it's just the wisdom of this movie is, is remarkable. And another doubling that 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 struck me is that you know, and I, I I'm being somewhat simplistic here, I'm sure, but Western music to my ears has a built-in narrative structure to it. It tends to have a big clear beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, it's in that sense, I guess you could say sort of somewhat linear. And whereas this music is almost turning up the volume on the cosmos in a way, it it it's structured so completely different different differently. And and over time, I think the music teaches someone like me who's unfamiliar with this kind of music to hear it and understand it, which I think is extraordinary. By the end of the movie, I, I love this music. And I think I understand why discipline and discipleship have to go into making it in order to make it correctly. Um, and the movie itself also is non-narrative isn't quite right, but it's meditative, non-linear. Um, you flash back, you uh, flash forward. It's just so curious, like the thi- curiously like the thing that it's about. It's really a beautiful document, and I appreciate the fact that you pointed us in the world to it. I also just I wanted to shout out the main actor because we haven't mentioned any of the cast yet. But um, but Aditya Modak is his name, and he ages so convincingly in this movie from his early twenties to maybe about forty that I actually had to check at the end. Is that a different actor when we see him in the in the later segments? Right? I mean, he's just a little 
chunkier and has a mustache, but he carries himself so differently. And you see so much what's happened to his, you know, to his mind and his heart over those years that has changed him. It's a really extraordinary performance. It's funny, we're we're also talking this week about Girls 5 Eva, Justin, and so we're actually focused exclusively on musical plots about uh, the aspirations of 20-something musicians and then what they are like when they're near 40, which I haven't, it's like hard to hold these two cultural products in your head at the same time. <laughs> But um, but but actually, they have something in common. <laughs> but no, his his performance is so astonishing, and and the movie sort of teaches you how to read it in a way, in the same way that it's teaching you how to read the music. I mean, you as you follow along, even if you know very little about it, the way in which he's able to perform satisfaction with one of his performances, frustration and tentativeness with one of his performances. I mean, he's acting through singing and through this very technically difficult kind of singing. And, you know, obviously, as we've seen with the Billie Holiday movie recently with Judy last year, like the singing performance is a thing that actors do and that is a, often a a bravura type of thing to do. But the particulars of being able to convey when one feels one has gotten it right, when one feels one hasn't, and then when the external perception of that, when, when, when the performance gets approval from his mentors and gurus, um, which is sometimes when he thinks it will and sometimes when he won't, is so fascinating. Like the, the subtleties of his performance is very contained, but, but so powerful uh, at the same time. I agree. I'm, I'm so curious to see more of this actor's work. I hope he appears in more films. I, this is his first screen role. I mean, he is a singer by trade, so uh, of course. As you, um, and this is, uh, you know, his. He's a non. He's not a trained actor or anything. This is, and and he's a natural. And and it's interesting what Dana was saying, yeah, about the visual style because this is a performance. You know, this is a character study, um, and this performance registers on so many of those nuanced levels, even though. We are there are very few close-ups of his face. Um, so so much of it is his body language and his interaction with the people around him. And this is what I love about this style, which I I don't know what I call this style. I mean, it's it's very I think it's you know, it's a style that I'm personally very used to and I love. Um, but I know most people who maybe don't watch a ton of, you know, what whatever you labels like art house movies, art movies, they're 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 reductive, but you know what I'm talking about, where a lot of it is composed in these master shots. And I think that that is where a lot of the wisdom and the nuance of this movie comes from because there's something about a long take where you're seeing a room where you're seeing bodies in a room you just it allows for all these different tones and inflections to come through the movie is not just splicing reality into little bites and shoving them at you and like one idea for per frame no it's like there's five or maybe 10 ideas per frame and it's it you know the camera the way i love the way it just moves you know through this crowd as they're meditating or as they're listening to this music and it creates this hypnotic meditative effect in you the viewer and i also just love that the way that you know the way that in a way, Sharad, uh, Aditya Modak's character, is ne- is never really the hero of his own story. I think there's something about the way he is visually undercut because he is, you know, he's often center frame, but he is not dominating the frame. This is a movie that is about art, but it is also kind of against solipsism in a way. It is sort of, it never lets you forget the world around you and the world in which he has to deal with all these commercial considerations and temptations and frustrations and setbacks. And I think that is, so that is all I think just really tightly, intricately bound up in the way the movie was, 
conceived and shot. And I, I'm sorry to go on so long, but really quickly, too, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, Alfonso Cuaron is an executive producer on this movie. And uh, Chaitanya Tamhani uh, was a, was mentored by him and worked on the set of Roma. And there are some similarities just in terms of the way these two movies were shot. And so and and uh, Cuaron gave a lot of guidance to the director on um, The Disciple, including hooking him up with the Polish cinematographer Michał Soboczynski, um, who shot the movie so beautifully. And another irony there, because Netflix, of course, gave Roma the grand deluxe treatment because that was an awards contender and it was Alfonso Cuaron. And they, and they treated his own mentors, his own mentees movie uh, like garbage by comparison. So it's just uh, layers of irony. Well, Justin, as always, just an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Please come back soon. And thank you so much for championing The Disciple. It's just a great film. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm so glad you did this. And thank you for having me. All right, now is the moment in the podcast where we endorse Dane. No, 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 Well, you know, Steve, you know that on the very rare week, probably the only week that we talk about a movie about Hindustani music, that I'm going to recommend some Indian music. I didn't want to get into it during the segment because I didn't want to pass myself off as someone who actually knows anything about this genre of music. But as you guys know, this is the kind of music in general, Indian classical, that I listen to all the time. It's kind of my... Uh, Steve, you were calling it co- like the, the the expansion of the cosmos music or something. I listen to this music a lot when I'm writing and trying to work. And I think part of the reason is because it's non-Western and it's non-recognizable to me. And so my mind doesn't find patterns in it as easily, right? So you don't get an, an earworm stuck in your head. At least I don't when I'm listening to ragas. Instead, it's sort of like a space that you're exploring because it's like jazz. It's an improvisational music, which is what the movie is all about. So um, I'm going to recommend an album that I was reminded of in the course of the movie because they talk about this. Remember the scene where there's a flashback to the the main character as a kid with his dad, right? His dad being also a, a passionate admirer of this kind of music. And his dad asks him to name the morning ragas, which is something that, again, I can't explain what that is. But morning ragas is a thing. And I remember that once on my, um, you know, whatever it was, Pandora playlist of, of Indian classical music, something came up called Morning Ragas, and I sort of thought it was like, oh, isn't that nice? You know, a theme of an album, like music that you listen to in the morning. But it is, in fact, this whole genre of Indian music, and there's also afternoon ragas, and there's seasonal ragas, and there's sort of ideas, and again, I, I hope somebody listening can explain this better than me, but, you know, ideas that certain melodic structures have to do with certain um, times of day, times of year, and moods. And the album that I first discovered that through is called Morning Ragas. It's by Nikhil Banerjee, who is this great classical sitarist who died in, in 1986, and um, and who actually had, you know, that kind of guru relationship, the guru-disciple relationship that the movie explores with the Khans, which is this historical musical family in, in India, including Ali Akbar Khan, who's one who's become quite known in the West. Anyway, um, Morning Ragas, Bombay 1965, is a live concert by Nikhil Banerjee that's just a really great exploration of this kind of music. Even if you know nothing about it, I think you'll enjoy it. And there's a fun story that I saw in connection with the album um, about the, the modesty, the extreme modesty of Nikhil Banerjee, who was giving this concert. And the person who made the album asked if he could record this concert in 1965. And Nikhil Banerjee essentially said, why? I'm not good enough yet. You can record it later on. Um, but the guy ended up recording it anyway, and it became this legendary Raga album. So Morning Raga's Bombay 1965. The artist is Nikhil Banerjee on sitar. And it's on Spotify, um, Amazon Music, and all over the place. Ah, that's marvelous. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Two endorsements. The first is that I am reading the Patrick Redden Keefe book, uh, Empire of Pain, which is this 
epic history of the Sackler family and their role in launching first Valium and then OxyContin um, and and spurring the opioid epidemic in this century in America. And man, it is a good piece of reporting and man, it is a good read. Like you might think, hmm, that sounds like there might be, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure it immediately conveys rip-roaringness in the same way that Keith's previous book, Say Nothing About the Troubles in Ireland, uh, did because it might sound sort of bureaucratic or back office or something, but just the human drama of this family and their complete inability to recognize how their power and the ways in which they are failing to account for it is ruining and ending lives. It's just a, a fascinating page turning portrait of moral calamity. And I've plowed through it in like three days so strong, strong, strong recommend. I mean, I'm hardly the first to say this book is good, but if, if you need to hear it from me, in addition to wherever else you've heard it to pick it up, then now you've heard it, pick it up. It's great. My second endorsement is there is a wonderful profile of Nick Bertel, a good friend of mine who composed our theme song, uh, I think now seven or so years ago uh, for this show in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. And, you know, as a journalist, I have great respect for the work of journalists and it's hard to get things right and we try and we do a lot and, you know, but when you read about a friend of yours, you don't always fully recognize them and this is just such a beautiful portrait of Nick and his way of working and the impact of his music and, and you know, he's gone on to do incredible things since, I mean, I, I, my one quibble with the profile is it sort of underplays the fact that launching the Culture Gap Fest theme song was clearly the... <laughs> you know, the, the launch pad of his career. It's very subtle about that. <laughs> Although it spends a lot of time on a college band that I've heard a lot about over the years. So I was, uh, that oversight aside, <laughs> it's just a great portrait. So if you enjoyed that episode, you should check out the profile, which is really, really wonderful and, and um, has great scenes of uh, Nick Bertel working with Barry Jenkins on the music for Underground Railroad, the adaptation of the Colson Whitehead book, which is coming out on Amazon later this week. And I think we will also put in our show page a link back to the 2014 episode where uh, Nick very gamely collaborated with us after we gave him a truly insane <laughs> brief trying to describe with three totally different opinions what we actually thought our theme shot song should sound like. So read the profile, go back and listen to our old episode if you want the deep cut, and definitely read empire of pain uh oh here here oh my gosh i was really i have such vivid memories of being in nick's apartment and messing around with both him and all of his cool equipment and just throwing this completely nonsensical word salad at him and out the other side eventually came our theme song it was just so it was so he's such a great guy i mean in addition to being stupidly talented but uh, anyway, uh, we have to have him back on. Oh my gosh, any excuse. I mean, maybe the, I guess Underground Railroad when it comes out, but that's going to be a while, but something sooner, hopefully. All right, this week I want to um, I want to endorse something quite serious, which is the uh, guest essay in the New York Times, Quentin Jones is not innocent, but he doesn't deserve to die, which is interactive with video. It's written by um, the uh, writer Suleika Jawad, who herself received a death sentence uh, in the form of leukemia about eight 
or so years ago when she was very young, 23, an incredibly promising writer and journalist, really thought she was facing her demise um, and wrote about it in a series of columns for the New York Times called Life Interrupted, which were extraordinary in their own right, but a death row inmate named Quinn, Quentin Philippe Jones, he goes by Quinn, began to write her saying, I also have a death sentence and, you know, reached out to her and they began a correspondence. He is set to die on, I believe, May 19th, about a week from when people will be listening to this. You can join in an effort to spare his life by emailing the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, on Quinn's behalf. What I like about, admire most, I think, in some ways about uh, Suleika Jawad's plea on behalf of him is that he's not innocent and he doesn't deserve to get out of jail, which is exactly how Quinn himself perceives his situation. He committed the crime. It was at the time a heinous crime. He was 20 years old and completely fucked up on drugs. Um, he has redeemed himself in prison as a human being. Does He wants to live out his natural life behind bars. He's not looking for any kind of clemency or, or freedom. He just doesn't want to die. And I think if you watch the video featuring him, it's impossible not to conclude that he doesn't deserve to die. Uh, I think this is a beautiful piece of advocacy journalism and writing. And I think his own testimony is really worth seeking out and watching. So it's on the New York Times now. It's called Quentin Jones is not innocent, but he doesn't deserve to die. It's uh, by uh, Suleiki Jawad. Check it out. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Dana, as always, a real pleasure. This was a fun one. As five ever. <laughs> You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. We do love it when you email us. We try to get back to you. Our email address is culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our, as you now know, amply, our introductory music is by the extraordinary Nick Patel. And subbing in for Cameron Drews this week, our show is produced by Jasmine Ellis and Asha Saluja. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. <laughs>